Hello. Hello, Michael. I dropped my apple. Are you going to blow on it? No. Okay, yeah. The bit side touched the ground? Yeah. Yeah, that's no good. And Ace is here. He was very much hoping to get it. He's obsessed with apples. It's the only food that if you eat an apple from anywhere in the house, he will perk his little ears up and come get you and beg you for a piece of apple. Oh, yeah, he recognizes the crunch. Yeah, I guess so. Or maybe the smell of apples is stronger than we realize. Well, Skeeter recognizes the sound of carrots being chopped. (laughs) That's very cute. Yeah. Are we recording? We are so recording. I'm periodically looking at the thing. Uh Uh-huh. My my, uh, insecurity, my complex... (laughs) about us recording has only increased. Yeah, I understand. Listeners, this is the second time we've tried recording this episode. It's true. We recorded what I would say was a majority of this episode a couple days ago and then realized as we were slowly spiraling towards the end that the recorder had stopped recording close to the beginning. This is my fault. My fault. Here we are bringing a different day's verve to the subject. Michael. Yes. Hi, how are you? I'm fine. I'm fine. I um, need to work on loving myself and opening up my heart to love. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Don't you think? Yeah. I mean, you should definitely love yourself. I wasn't sure where your self-love-ometer was at these days, but I certainly think you should love yourself. You're very lovable. Oh, thanks. And worthy of love. Thank you, Hava. Yeah. I need to figure that out somehow. I don't know. Yeah. It's hard. It's a difficult thing. Mm-hmm. What else is happening? I have a lumber crayon. Oh, is that for like marking measurements on lumber? Yeah, it's for marking whatever you want on lumber. <laughs> for wood, lumber arts. Firewood or whatever for lumber right. related arts. It's kind of fun. It's like a just a giant crayon. I mean, I've had it for a while. I just have been fiddling with it recently. Mm-hmm. So Great. Love that for you. Couch Saga continues. Oh, yeah. So you try to get this couch and then the person you try to get a couch from had heart surgery right 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 so then i like i made an offer on the couch i was like okay well like we'll come and pick it up we'll figure it out just do you want the offer never responded listing expired next day relists it relists it that's a loophole that the godfather didn't think of when they made an offer they couldn't refuse it's just you can just walk away yeah it's really surreal when that yeah. happens. Actually, that happened when we tried to buy this house. We made an offer and they were just like, yeah, we just don't know if that's going to work. I don't know. Like, <laughs> they oh just didn't goodness. make a counter offer. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like, oh, that's not going to work. We have the confidence we're going to walk away and we know you're going to come running back. Right. With a higher it was offer. just silence. The tone was like, I guess we'll just not sell the house. It just doesn't seem like a good market for us. It was like yeah. defeat on their part. They were trying to get you to negotiate with yourself. I don't think they were that. They weren't savvy. I they don't were think just they were actually that defeated. I think they were actually defeated because yeah. they were selling like a fucked up cabin in the woods, you know, so. Right. Little did they know that's exactly what you needed. Yeah, right, right. So, I don't know. My recommendation to you all out there is please come to the bargaining table. Don't <laughs> don't 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 just walk away. Uh-huh. Cuz what if you have a house or a couch you were trying to get rid of? That's not the right approach. Although who knows. This has been life lessons from Michael. Yeah. How are you, Ava? End of episode. <laughs> um Hashem. I'm in, I'm in a weird vibe right now. I like didn't sleep that well last night. I had a crazy dream. 
where I had some supernatural powers and then I was in danger. I don't really remember the whole thing. I've been having really vivid dreams and not sleeping well recently, which are things that have been characteristics of my life in the past, but not recently. So don't love the reemergence of that. I mean, dreams are cool, but they're, they are accompanied by poor sleep. So, so I woke up and then I was awake for a little while and then I went back to sleep and then I woke up again. And that just sort of puts me in a weird headspace where it's like, I don't feel how I normally would feel first thing in the morning, but I'm not in the appropriate afternoon vibe. I'm just like temporarily displaced from my own schedule. Yeah. So that's, that's my current day and and uh overall vibe at this moment oh okay well i hope you have fewer weird dreams in the future i guess thank you me too i had one recently where the whole plot of the dream was that i made up a a really good song i don't really write songs so even in the dream i didn't write songs so everyone was really surprised that i had written a song and how good it was and i remember thinking in the dream i'm gonna remember this when i wake up because it's a really good song. I did not, reader, I did not remember it when I woke up, but it haunts me a little bit thinking that <laughs> I had a dream song, a hit somewhere out there that I've forgotten in the midst of time. Well, if it makes you feel any better, Grunge Girl wrote a little song, a little chorus of a song. I can sing it to you. Oh, yeah. Um, Is it like your song that you sing to her when she's mad at you? No, it's not that one, which I think only the patrons know about. But Well, patrons, if you're not a patron, go become one so you can listen to Michael's song that he sings when his girlfriend's mad. She was making fun of Eurovision, and she was like, this is my Eurovision song. La, 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 la. La, 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 love me, la, la, la. Anyway, that's it. That's the song. From the first law, it was already a great Eurovision parody. I know, I love it. There is this very bizarre movie that I had no idea about when it came out. What is it just called, Eurovision? It has Will Ferrell in it. Ugh, I'm not interested. Are you a Will Ferrell fan? Is anyone? Eh, neutral. Okay, it's like Will Ferrell and Rachel McAdams are trying to get on Eurovision and they're from Iceland. But as part of the movie, they like cook up a Eurovision song, you know, like they had to write a song for them to actually sing. But it turns out that the song that they write for the movie is actually like really good and gets stuck in my head all the time. But then it's like I have a Will Ferrell song stuck in my head, so I hate that. It's a lot. So if you decide to watch the 2020 film Eurovision, just know what you're getting yourself into. Okay, that's good. Oh, another like related to entertainment thing I guess I should I could mention is that my cousin is the bass player in Usher's band, so he's playing at the Super Bowl today. Wild. I know, totally wild. Whoa. So, that's weird. That's a thing. Yeah, that's just a cool fact. There's no appropriate response. I'm really hoping that he exposes, you know, Usher's boob or something like that. <laughs> no, we wish only total bodily autonomy for all performers at the Super Bowl. No, I yes, yes, but but we would. Wouldn't it be wild? Though? I think it would be cool if my cousin was. Wouldn't like, it make great content? It would make great content. I really hope it doesn't. It would be bad because if it did happen in a few hours, I'd have to edit this all out. So <laughs> right. So we kind of hope it doesn't happen so yeah. that we can keep this. Yeah. So yeah, that's a fun fact. Fun fact. Okay, Michael. Yeah. I won't I won't pretend that you're introducing this to me for the first time, but introduce to our listeners and remind me what the fuck we're talking about today. All right. Okay. So two weeks ago I brought a paper about Jewish pottery. Judean right. 
Jerusalemite pot shirts. And I wanted to talk more about this article. We're not going to really talk about pot shirts too, too much. But this article... So don't worry if you're sick of all the pot shirt talk. <laughs> yeah. I just can't... Everyone's talking about first century pot shirts. I'm sick of it. I am a little tired of it. I can tell I wouldn't get along with, like, archaeologists that are really into pot shirts. There's something kind of, like, hoity-toy... I assumed all archaeologists were into pot shirts. Maybe they are. I mean, not Indiana Jones. He's He only goes after the big fish. Yeah, that's true. You never see him down there in the trenches doing the hard work. No, no. So... Pot shards, no, but burial locations and burial practices, big yes for that. That's the second <laughs> half of the paper. Wanted to talk about it. As a reminder, we are talking about this paper. It's called Jewish Life Before the Revolt, the Archaeological right. Evidence by Professor Andrea Berlin, professor at University of Boston something something. Currently. And this is the revolt that preceded the destruction of the Second Temple. Yes. So we are talking about the two centuries preceding the destruction of the Second Temple in 70 CE. Okay. So there are three types of burial styles that I want to talk about. The first is the burial cave which was very common in Palestine at the time. There are like thousands that have been found and right. many in the Judean countryside, so normal folks did it who, you know, weren't rich and living in Jerusalem and, you know, connected to all the politics and temple. Right. Your average family just, like, dug themselves a burial cave. Yes. It was just, like, a thing. Yep. You just dug it into the, I guess, presumably kind of soft stone in the side of a hill, like, outside of town. Mm -hmm. You'd usually feature, like, a little courtyard in front. Then you'd have an entrance, maybe a stone that you can roll in front of it and remove it when you want to go inside. Once you get inside, there's different loculi. So like a loculus is like a... Like a cubby a, hole. More like a, like a blanket box that you put a body in. And a that's, blanket box? You don't know what a blanket like, like a Like a coffer, like a, you know, like a... Like imagine I'm a googling blanket box you right don't know now. What a blanket box I've is. never heard the phrase blanket box in my life before. Is it the sequel to Bird Box? No, it is not the secret <laughs> sequel to Bird Box. Okay, a chest is the word that you're yes. looking for. Yeah, so think of a chest. You can put a body in it. There'd be those. You'd go in the cave. You put a body in the in, in the loculus, right? Okay. Then after a time, you'd go back and then you'd put the bones that are left over into a little cubby. And those were called kokim. At least that's not what we're called. That's what we call them now. Kokim. Right. And this is where there's a little bit of potsherds. So inside these caves, archaeologists have found potsherds of basically household cooking pots, also like perfume bottles, household goods. So there was probably some component of people gathering in these places. Definitely in the courtyard, but maybe even inside to kind of honor the dead and maybe right. even offerings. I don't know about offerings, but maybe household goods were left behind for some sort of reason that right. remains unclear. I feel like you said during our previous recording extravaganza that it was maybe either that unexpectedly Jews did this thing of of leaving like uh, afterlife possessions with the dead. Or maybe it was just like a communal cookout area for some sort of funeral ceremony. Like you're having a wake in the burial cave. Yeah, yeah. You're in the burial cave. You're in the funeral parlor. You're in the burial cave slash funeral parlor. 
Right, right. And I don't know, I guess maybe it makes sense that if you're going to do the food thing there, you'd want to leave your pots there for like ritual right. leave the dishes for the dead leave the dishes for the ancestors to take care of there occasionally are mikvahs found near these graves so mm-hmm. there's definitely some sort of ritual purity thing happening there's also lamps that people find in these caves oh. so maybe you go in with your oil or something light a lamp in order to do your you know grieving Mm-hmm. So these caves are really common. They house like an extended family. So you have these primary burial locations, these loculi, then you have these secondary coquim that you put the bones, very efficient for storage. They are not ornate. They're very simple and they're usually on the outskirts of town, very humble, but I guess kind of labor intensive to make because you have to dig out a cave, a family cave. Right. And they're like under hills and stuff. Yes, they are under hills. And I did see a photo where there are some burial caves on a hill and on top of the hill are modern buildings, which I thought was really wet. Very haunted. If you look at pictures of burial caves, they look this. I could never be an archaeologist because this stuff, I, I would take one look at it and be like, nope, not today. I am not trying to get killed by vengeful ghosts. Yeah, they look super haunted. Also, this sort of like makes me reconsider the whole deal about the Talmud slash Mishnah are like always worrying about people walking over places where people have been buried, which in my head, I always think like, oh, like when wouldn't they all be in one place, basically, like wouldn't you have like a centralized burial situation? But it seems like it was more common for there to just be like, you never know when the little hill you're walking over might have burial caves in it. Yeah, yeah. Seems like that's true. I think maybe we should return to that. That's just me being silly, but... Oh, return to a burial cave situation? Yeah, I kind of like it. Yeah, I mean, I can see the appeal. I don't know why we started... How people started having cemeteries. This is a, a subject for a future episode. Like, how did the practice of centralized burial come about? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Maybe land became more valuable, you know, and scarcer. Right. I feel like at least for Europeans, it has probably had something to do with the church. Yeah, maybe. The church was always affecting land use policy, you know. What I wonder about is now Jews get buried. I don't really know Mm -hmm. the Jewish, but there's supposed to be some contact with the dirt, right? During burial. Um, Did I make that up? My understanding is that ideally we're buried in a plain wooden casket. Yeah, so we're not doing that in this time period. We are being put in stone or ceramic vessels, uh, big ones, and then being transferred. Our bones are then being put into the sides of a cavern wall. You know. Right, and then the cave is sealed with a stone. The cave is sealed when with not stone. in use. Yeah, which I guess would be helpful is like uh, if you're just walking around in the countryside and you see a big stone holding up a cave, you know, not to go, not to get in there because it's a burial cave. Yeah, don't go in there. It might look like just a rock slide, but just don't don't risk it. So the one yeah. thing that people did do besides digging out the cave, they did mark the names on the secondary burial locations of the family members. So there is archaeological evidence of that so that's how they're able to figure out that they're usually part of the same family these caves Mm -hmm. okay burial style number two preceding the destruction of the second temple was the fancy display tombs which are rarer and there's a bunch in jerusalem in the historically fancy rich neighborhoods 
Right, which kind of, these seem like they're kind of the same thing as version one, but just fancy. Yes, they're the exact same thing as version one, but they are fancy on the outside, especially. One of them, I believe, has like two floors. The, The historical evidence suggests that they belong to rich people, and there are even some specific examples that people have been able to figure out that they belong to priestly families, so people that were involved in the temple. One was some uh, a Jew, I believe, who immigrated to Jerusalem, and the Talmud attributes him to being the person that donated the bronze doors to the temple, so like a rich, successful Jew who moved to town and like had his really really nice burial cave and then there's some royal who i forget her name but a person who converted to judaism but who from a royal Mm -hmm. family and like from a kingdom to the i believe to the west who came and converted to judaism who had their fancy burial cave and i think josephus and other sources point out that these caves these seem in line with the kind of Roman practices of having a lot of pomp and circumstance mm-hmm. around death and burial. A lot of these burial caves are in prominent places where a lot of people can see them. They're facing towards the Temple Mound. They also have like decorative carvings on the inside that resemble the temple and stuff like that, at least in one of them that was from a priestly family. So there's a lot more perhaps Roman influence happening and display of wealth that's happening with these families ostentatious burial caves ostentatious burial caves i didn't say it you did i don't (laughs) want to offend anyone you know i'm sick of trying to keep up with the kardashians and their ostentatious burial caves we can't all live that lifestyle but what's interesting is so these fancy caves that the fancy people had that were you know cosmopolitan or whatever Mm mm-hmm They don't appear in northern parts of Palestine, like Tiberias locations, Mm -hmm. so like north of the Dead Sea. And there were royalty and rich people there who were Jews. And they just weren't doing fancy burial caves. That wasn't part of their... They weren't into the ostentatious thing. It was something about the Jerusalem wealthy that were doing it. The East Coast elites... I know. It's the East. No, it really is. It's really funny. It's it's the, well, it's kind of ironic because it's like, it's the East Coast elites, right? And we talked about in the other episode how the East Coast elites, they had like the Roman uh, frittata pans, like they right. had the fancy living rooms, the foreign pottery during a time mm-hmm. when. Right. The marvelous Mrs. Maisels of their time. Yes. But what's weird is, at least mythologically, they aren't the ones that won out. Like the temple cult got fucked. Right. The temple got destroyed. And what resulted was, you know, probably, I don't know, maybe you could call it some sort of upper class, you know, rabbinic Judaism started. But it at least mythologically is like very separate from these East Coast elites, the equivalent of the East Coast elites. Right. It's almost like if the East Coast was suddenly like taken over by... I don't know, the Romans or whatever right right now and like took over the New York Times and the Atlantic and Boston and New York and all of it. And then like (laughs) some weird mythological legend happened 2000 years from now. And they're all like, I gotta take the bus to the forum. It's wicked far. Yeah, 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 exactly. 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 It's like then there's like a Sanhedrin of like like normal New Englanders right. form and like they're the dominant like culture. So be afraid, people. Be afraid. 
<laughs> oh my god that's the last thing we need a fusion between east coast culture and the romans look if the romans came and destroyed the east coast elite i would be okay with that you know it's not so much a fusion as just an utter destruction so I don't it know. depends what version of of elite how we're defining elite here anyway yeah, true. what true. so with fancy tombs Fancy burial caves. So in the north, are there just plain Jane burial caves? There's some plain Jane burial caves, yes. And then there's some option three. And there's some option three. And option three is really interesting. This is the option associated with the Cave of Wonders, as I like to call it, the Qumran Qumran Caves. caves, Yes. The ones where the Dead Sea Scrolls were. Famous for the opening scenes in Aladdin, where Apu and Aladdin (laughs) go in, try to get the gold and the big giant crystal. And right. they fail miserably, and everything turns to lava. And that's what happened the first time we opened the cave of the Dead Sea Scrolls. <laughs> that's why it took so long to get the scrolls out. They were buried under lots and lots of, <laughs> of lava. <laughs> of lava. So in addition to the scrolls, in these caves are these things that are lovingly referred to by archaeologists as shaft tombs. And the shaft tombs are just shafts that go into the ground. And at the bottom of the shaft, it like kind of opens up a little bit more. How do you dig something like that? I don't know, carefully? (laughs) Yeah, just like what? I can't imagine like being able to dig down a narrow hole and then widen it at the bottom. Well, it's not like a hole. It's like a coffin-shaped rectangle, I guess. Not... Uh just like but a body shape deeper than the height of an average man is my understanding oh okay i was imagining way deeper than that oh no no not super deep okay that seems more possible yeah so we go down pretty deep but not too deep and then you kind of make a little space like kind of like the bottom of a thermometer it can, kind of gets mm-hmm. bigger and that's where you put a body and you can like put a rock down there to like cover the body I see. So these shaft tombs usually don't happen in isolation. They're usually in areas where there's like a bunch of them together, kind of like a proto graveyard. But Mm -hmm. there's no markers on them. And very, very rarely is there any pottery or any artifacts left with these. Wow. Okay. So this is like the most austere. Super austere. Option. And again, it's like associated with this Qumran sect, which I guess people associate to be the Essenes. Mm -hmm. But what I thought was weird about this, besides like, okay, they have different burial practices, which might imply that they think differently about death and the afterlife than the average Judean that we're all mythologically, you know, descended from. Right. These shaft tombs appear in other places not just in the Qumran caves in like groups of like 10 or 15 or something like that and Josephus when he talks about the Essenes he says that they don't have one city but they do have a bunch of colonies in a bunch of different locations so if these Qumran sect shaft tomb people are the Essenes then it's supported by Josephus that you know we would expect to have like these little colonies of these right, particular these little outposts which i think is cool because i didn't really think of the essenes in my mind i'm like oh they're just like in their one location in the cave doing whatever it is right. they're doing but they're actually all over and they're mm-hmm. like you know they're the jews that are kind of weird and you aren't really part of or maybe you are one of those jews and <laughs> You know, <laughs> right? They're the weird people who moved out of your town to start a land project. They started their commune in the country. This reminds me of the uh, Chabad tunnel. Oh my God! This came is, out a couple this is weeks secretly ago. our Chabad tunnel episode. This is our Chabad tunnel episode. Secret tunnel. I didn't realize that, but yeah. So what you're saying is that since time's immemorial, 
Jews have had an inborn urge to dig tunnels. And that's why the Chabad tunnel came into existence. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, y- that is exactly what I'm saying. I do wonder, though, what the relationship was like between these Essenes, mm-hmm. who you could map onto Chabad, modern Chabad now, and the right. and the and the you know the burial cave Jews, which you could say are the other Jews. Right, much like the Essenes, Chabad is has basically become an, in my opinion, could be classified as a religion other than Judaism. That's like a a hot debate, but they are oh, they is, are that's hot quite divergent. Well, it's like they oh my god, they one of Chabad's strong points of unity is that the Rebbe was the Messiah, and that is about as divergent well, from Judaism as you can get. I don't know, but they don't say that. That's like a. That's like a thing you don't say out loud, right? That's that's not like I an mean, official. I don't know enough about the internal politics of Chabad to say so. I'm just saying Chabad is, is is its own thing. It's its own thing enough that when I was first reconnecting with Judaism and I would tell people like, oh, yeah, I found this on the Chabad website. It's so helpful. More experienced Jews would be like, oh, yeah, Chabad is super helpful. Like, don't take too seriously exactly what they say because they're kind of their own weird thing no i (laughs) agree have to come with a disclaimer i agree i agree they're their own weird thing you need a disclaimer but can i just tell you my like read on the chabad tunnel thing is actually the opposite that they don't think that schneerson was the messiah in fact i think it's very interesting and this is all me projecting but i feel like it's a reflection of modern society in my mind okay schneerson dies you have upper management takes over. They've been like managing right. without Schneerson for a couple decades now. They're like, he wasn't the Messiah. We're just going to try to like steer this boat. None of us have any of the personality or leadership ability to like, you know, fucking lead this thing in the way that right. Schneerson did. We're just fucking bureaucrats just taking care of business. And then it's the young people who are like, Schneerson's the Messiah. This sucks. What is this bullshit bureaucracy we're dealing with? Fuck this. So you're saying there's going to be a Hasidic revival from within Chabad by the younger generation? Yeah, I think it's like the young, currently powerless Chabad kids are probably more into Schneerson being the Messiah than like the stodgy. That's my guess. That's my mm-hmm. that's my little guess. Well, file that away for future predictions. If it comes true, we'll we'll revisit the topic. And it's so in line with you know people our age losing faith in the in the civic institutions that uh, right you know right whatever you know you're an anarchist. As we've mentioned. A Chabad anarchist. Well, this is a, you know, I want to say a delightful topic. I mean, I enjoyed talking about it. It's hard to say it was a delightful topic, but it was a very satisfying topic. It was tasty. It is. It is kind of tasty. I enjoy that we have archaeology episodes now. That's part of the trend in our podcast. Yeah, I like it too. I wanted to bring it because, again, like I wanted to somehow connect with um, with, with as much as we can know about who our mythological ancestors were. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I kind of think of myself as an Amha Aretz, you know. Right. And so what were the Amha Aretz like, you know? And this is, as far as I know. They had burial caves. They had burial caves. Like, at least we know that. At least we know they had burial caves. Right. And we know about their cookware. And we know about their cookware. Some of it. Right. We do know about their cookware and their lamps and their burial caves. So maybe there'll be more explorations to come. I want there to be a magic school bus episode where Miss Frizzle tells us about all of this. Yeah, I want Miss Frizzle to explain all sorts of really, really 
terrible historical things. Yeah. At my old school, we never had burial caves. <laughs> uh, uh. Uh, well, listeners, I hope you all have enjoyed this quite bizarre journey into the land of pre-revolt Jewish burial practices and a little bit of potsherds. That's what I'll call the episode. Pre-revolt Jewish burial practices and a little bit of potsherds. And some Chabad. And uh, some Chabad, some tunnel. Some tunnels. Some Super Bowl. You know. Yeah. Something Super Bowl ceramics joke. Thanks for joining us in our madness. Also, registration is up for the two upcoming Shomala classes. The first of which is building our brachas, which will be taught by the wonderful Bryn Solomon, which is sort of a after you've learned your Aleph Bet What Next class, teaching you some Hebrew grammar and teaching you a lot about the non-binary Hebrew system that Bryn used in Bryn's prayer book. And then the other class is called Sacred Wiggles, which will be taught by Robin Banerjee and is going to be all about the bizarre and wonderful movements that we do during ritual and prayer in Judaism. So I'll put registration links to those in the description below. And without any further ado, Shavuot Tov. Shavuot Tov.